Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, still here in Vancouver at NeurIPS, continuing our coverage of this incredible conference. And I've got the pleasure of being seated with Blaise Aguera-Yarkas. Uh, Blaise is a distinguished scientist with Google AI. Blaise, welcome to the Twimmel AI podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So you are doing an invited talk here at the conference tomorrow morning on social intelligence, and we're going to dig into what exactly that means for you. But before we do, I'd love to get a, a bit of your background. Sure. So uh, it's a little motley. Uh-huh. Um, I started off in physics uh, okay. as an undergraduate at, at Princeton, and I studied physics and applied math there. I took a year off between my third and fourth years because I was not a very good student. <laughs> and, um, uh, and, and I, I really started to get into, into biophysics pretty heavily. Uh, so, um, during I, your year off or after? During. Okay. During. Uh, and, um, or a little, bit, a little bit before and then, and then during. So I, okay. I, I worked for, for a little while in Stan Leibler's lab there. He was working on bacterial chemotaxis. And that actually is going to figure a little bit into my talk. Okay. tomorrow morning. So it's the behaviors of uh, the intelligent behaviors of bacteria and how it is that they that they uh, find food. They're obviously okay. a really small simple system but maybe not quite as simple as people think. Okay. And um uh and then uh from there um my my next advisor uh Bill Bialik is uh, uh somebody with a physics background as well but also a computational neuroscientist and he ran this course in Woods Hole at the Marine Biological Lab. Uh, called methods in computational neuroscientists. Methods in computational neuroscience. Sorry, uh, okay. I don't. I don't know if you're familiar or, or how many of your listeners are with 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 MBL with the Marine Biological Laboratory. But it's this place where um, this a is lot at of Princeton. No, no, it's in it's on Cape Cod. Oh, okay. Uh, and so it's right on the elbow of Cape Cod, across from Martha's Vineyard. Okay. And it's this little tiny town. It's very cute, and there's this kind of ramshackle lab that's been there since the 19th century. Huh. That. Um, that a lot of a lot of visiting uh, sort of neuroscientists and biologists have been going to for many many years. Um, you know, a lot of really basic discoveries in, in in neuroscience were made there. Oh wow! So it's kind of this cool place. And 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 uh, at this course at at Methods in Computational Neuroscience, I I met um, my now wife uh, Adrienne Fairhall. Oh wow! So uh, she also came up in physics uh, and uh, studied originally chaos and turbulence and fluid dynamics and things like this and was uh, was making the switch to computational neuroscience so we met there and um and then she ended up getting uh, a faculty job at University of Washington which is how we ended up moving to okay. Seattle and um around that time I started a company um and uh, was you know no longer really part of academia at that point and um and the company got acquired by Microsoft a couple of years later. And the company uh, was doing computer vision type of work, or yeah, somewhat. Somewhat. Uh, it was it was doing sort of multi-resolution representations of of documents of, of various kinds. So it was it was, ah, okay. it was a combination of wavelet-ish kind of tricks and um, and UX. Uh, you know, if, if uh, I think wavelet is like kryptonite for me. That was the <laughs> hardest thing that I studied in grad school. For whatever reason, it was very difficult to grok. It was, it was hard. Um, yeah. My, my, uh, my advisor in, in uh, grad school uh, in, in um, applied math was Ingrid Dobeshi, who was one of the inventors of Wavelets. Oh, wow. And, that might um, have helped. 
Yeah, it helped. <laughs> uh, she was she was absolutely wonderful, very very smart, very kind, uh, and I think I think one of the greatest li- living mathematicians. Uh, if I mm. you know I don't know maybe I'm biased, but um, <laughs> but anyway. Um, yeah, Microsoft acquired it, and and I, I did immediately turn the team toward more kind of computer visiony things right after that. So okay. Photosynth, which started off as the photo tourism project right. by um, a, a University of Washington professor and a Microsoft research uh, scientist, um, together with with their grad student Noah Snavely, was doing three D reconstructions of environments from two D images, and that was really my introduction to computer vision. Okay. That was very classical. It wasn't like deep nets or anything like this. It was right. it was geometric computer vision. But I kind of fell in love with that with that field, and ended up uh, at Microsoft. You know, sort of doing a lot of leading of teams, doing that kind of work. So Microsoft's you know OCR team and their kind of photogrammetry type teams, the teams that ended up doing a lot of work for Hololens for tracking uh, the head using using outward facing cameras, all that kind of stuff was okay. was part of my team at the time. Oh wow! So I was at Microsoft for seven years. I also was the CTO of Bing Maps. Uh, which also had some kind of computer vision, VR, photogrammetry kind of stuff going on, yeah. and Bing Mobile. And then I, um, I went to Google. That was six years ago. I come across so many people that are in this field that have some connection to Bing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Big, I mean, I shouldn't, I shouldn't uh, badmouth. I mean, it was, it was, it was creative and scrappy at the time. Uh, uh-huh. You know, whether whether Microsoft was really committed to running these things, I guess you know is anybody's guess. Right. Right. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, one of the motive, one of the reasons that I ended up leaving uh, Microsoft was because about six years ago they had just uh, kind of lost the phone war, and it became clear that they were going to be moving away from being a consumer focused company, and they were going to start working on just you know enterprise stuff, and, and that wasn't that interesting to me. Okay. And that was around the same time also that the, the whole deep learning revolution was really getting into full swing, mm-hmm. and I was very excited about about sort of machine learning and computational neuroscience reconverging. Yeah. Yeah. And Google was the obvious place, you know, where the, the kind of hotbed of, of a lot of that. So nice. So, what do you research at Google? Well, um, at Google, uh, I started a team called Cerebra, which is not a name that we've generally used in public, but that's not at all um, heady. <laughs> well, well, but it's, I'm the, bum. it's the plural. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's the plural of brain. So there was a brain team already. That you know, Jeff Jeff Dean started the brain yeah. team a few years before, and uh, I went to Google to start a team that would take a much more decentralized approach. So rather okay. than one brain, it would be many brains, everybody would have a little brain. And uh, I, I had a kind of very um, augmentation-focused point of view, you know, that, that rather than having you know, one giant AI running in a data center, um, these things would have to shrink, they would have to democratize, they would have to go into devices, run locally. I had um, a lot of reasons for really wanting to push in that direction, including privacy, uh, which I will talk about uh, a bit tomorrow. Okay. So mobile nets and a lot of these kind of efficient ways of running uh, neural nets locally came from, uh, from our team. Oh, wow. uh, I again am running the, you know, the, the, the groups uh, at Google that do things like OCR and face recognition and uh, you know, a bunch of other sort of um, uh, image understanding uh, primitives. Okay. But we also power a lot, of, a lot of AI or ML features or whatever you want to call them in Android and also on other kinds of devices. Uh, including including these little kind of coral boards, which are uh, sort of an IoT uh, kit for wow. doing for doing local. Yeah, those AI. were. Uh, I think those were just. Well, I guess it's maybe half a year ago at the TensorFlow Developer Conference. That's I right. think I have one. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. So oh, yeah, nice. we're very excited about. I'm very excited okay. about those. Cool. 
you mentioned OCR and uh, of all the things that we've talked about, I think of that, or it's probably easy to think of that as a solved problem, an old yeah. problem, but there's probably a lot of, uh, you know, I guess even just saying it, there's probably like this last mile problem where in order to get to usable or, or better levels of um, accuracy and performance, kind of that those last few percentage points are really hard to get to. So yeah, you say, I mean, it solves the problem. And, and yeah, I mean, it's good enough, you know, for practical use. You know, mm -hmm. There are a lot of engines that are good enough for practical use. Yeah. But, you know, A, of course, extra percentage points are always useful, you know, so right. a little, little <laughs> bit more is always better. But also, um, the OCR team that I ran at Microsoft was still using a lot of these classical techniques that would first, mm -hmm. you know, they would have a whole pipeline of different stages, first segmenting out uh, letters and then, you know, doing template matching and then using language model, you know, all kinds of mm. stuff like this. And the direction that, that, um, that I think and that, and that the, you know, the, the people in the OCR team believe are really the most fruitful now are much more end to end and much more neural. So you right. know, imagine it's more like a scanner that scans the entire line, maybe bidirectionally yeah. and emits, uh, you know, a string of characters, kind of like a speech engine might. Mm -hmm. If you do it that way, then you know, joined, ligature, joined letters and ligatures don't matter. Right. Cursive doesn't matter. Handwriting and, and, and uh, you know, and print could be the same. Mm -hmm. uh, Arabic and other languages that don't have good, you know, distinctions between letters. I shouldn't say good, but right, that, that, don't, that, that don't distinguish clearly between letters mm -hmm. and have a more cursive sort of approach. All of those things work. And that sort of generalness and also just weird fonts. You know, there are a lot of things that, that are easy for us to read that a classic OCR engine can. Right. So right. thinking about it more like a real vision problem of, you know, with the brain behind it, as opposed to just a classical kind of letter clustering problem with the language model tacked on. Mm. So is the, the focus of that work today achieving the level of accuracy that we'd previously achieved with traditional approaches with deep approaches, or have we oh, that, that met already or long, far surpassed Yeah, that? we've already far surpassed. Okay. Right. I mean, the, the, goal, the goal now is to be able to do that um, in a way that is compact, real-time, runs on devices, uh, doesn't, it doesn't have to be told what language something is in or what kind of script, yeah. uh, has a unified model for every imaginable kind of script, you know, those, those kind of goals, right? Yeah. So the kind of things that, that a person can do. But yeah, the, the, the neural methods have long surpassed the, the classical methods. Got it, got it. Yeah, Je Jeff uh, has been on the podcast previously and has mentioned that the transition from traditional machine translation to neural machine translation resulted, among other things, in increased performance and a reduction in the size of that code base from half a million lines of code to, I forget what the number was, 50 or something. It was like an astounding <laughs> right. number. Right. Is there a similar... It's exactly kind of, the same. Exactly the same. Exactly yeah. the same story. End-to-end uh, -end learning, you know, the code is very, it suddenly becomes very small because all of the structure, all the statistical structure in, mm -hmm. in the thing is being learned rather than coded. Uh, and, and, it, and it means that a lot of the assumptions that you might make in that code don't have to be made. Uh, at, at, at programming time, right. uh, like letters being distinct or being read from left to right, or yeah. uh, you know, or, or not being slanted, being being able to to you know to be kind of uh, characterized in terms of connected components or boxes and, and so on. Right. And so your invited talk here at NeurIPS is about OCR. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, the team is pretty big, and OCR is is only uh, is only three or four people, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, it is in fact about social intelligence, yes. uh, which is more related to the concept of cere cerebrus in many brains, mm -hmm. I imagine. Um, what what exactly are you discussing in the talk? Right. Well, it's a wide ranging talk, and uh, you know, I, I guess it has the shape of. 
you know, like some a lot of very broad considerations at the beginning, and then some specific technical work um, in the middle, and then maybe broadening it back out a little bit at the end. But mm-hmm. the um, the broad themes are that you know, I guess um, we've gotten to the point, like with OCR, that if you know what the goal is, if you're able to score or to make a loss function for what you're doing. And we have lots of training data, like we do with OCR or FACES or, or whatever. A couple of minor um, considerations. Minor considerations. Yeah, obviously they're not. You know. <laughs> well, I, but this is the thing. I don't think that they used to be considered, uh, you know, all that limiting, mm. uh, mm-hmm. right? So in, in the days of, I don't know, the Dartmouth Summer Project or something, you know, people were like, we have, we don't know how to solve AI. You know, think about it. You know, only only brains can do things like understand language and writing and so on. Surely, if we figure out how to how to do those kinds of things will crack the secret of intelligence. Mm-hmm. And now we're like the dog that caught the car. You know, like we, you know, any of those things that can be characterized cleanly, uh-huh. we can achieve superhuman performance basically. I mean, I'm making a slightly forward-looking statement. Not all of these things sure. are superhuman yet, but it's, you know, sure. like if you if you say something isn't, then like next year it will be. Right. You know, so, so like we've solved it and yet um, none of the systems that we've built are intelligent in a way that you or I would recognize as intelligence. Right. Um, it's they're just it's just functions, you know. Mm-hmm. It's just regression, really, in the end. Mm-hmm. And that's why we say, you know, like AI or ML data ML slash data science. And in a way, you know, the the projects of AI and data science could not be more different. Mm-hmm. You know, data science is just about you know modeling data, right? right. And AI is about making minds. I mean, on the face right. of it, like, really, are these the same thing? So, you know, I, I think if there's a, a single theme for my talk, it's like, well, what is that? What is that gap? And mm-hmm. and why? And why is it there? The reason that I called it um, social AI or social intelligence was that um, I've come to believe uh, in the last few years that um, that sociality, which is to say our interactions with each other, mm-hmm. are not um, incidental to intelligence, but are actually fundamental to it. Hmm. Um, in the sense that life isn't a one-player game. It's not like we evolved intelligence as a as an adaptation in order to uh, get by in a really hard video game environment where nature is trying to kill us and we have to outwit it. Um, on the contrary, like an individual human is a lot worse at outwitting nature than our our ape ancestors. Like drop mm-hmm. one of us naked in the jungle and like only only a handful <laughs> of us will make it. You know, um, maybe the the piraha you know in Brazil or something. But, right, but it's, right. there are very few people who can make it. We get to watch it on TV. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so you know, our environment is each other, mm-hmm. and. Um, and there, there is a, um, there is a um, famous researcher, Robin Dunbar, who proposed the uh, the social cortex hypothesis way back in the '90s. Um, and he's not the first. Franz uh, van der Waal and, and um, uh, Franz de Waals and many other many other uh, researchers have had the same kind of idea that mm-hmm. we are essentially the role of intelligence is to model others. Mm-hmm. And since you and I are of the same species, it's useful for me to be able to model you and to understand what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. And um, and so my brain will grow bigger in order to model yours, but we share genes. So in the process, your brain grows bigger as well. And you have mm-hmm. a kind of uh, you know arms race or, or a feedback loop. Mm-hmm. And that's how you get these kind of intelligence explosions that we've seen in, in the apes and in cetaceans and dolphins and whales and, and, mm-hmm. and some other species. Echoes in a lot of ways, uh, Yuval Harari's yes. from Sapiens idea that our kind of core achievement as a species is the ability to collaborate and communicate yeah. goals and stories to one another yeah. uh, and kind of project forward. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there are a bunch of a bunch of recent books. Harari's are, are among them, but also Nicholas Christakis, 
uh, Blueprint, um, The Human Swarm, uh, Moffat's book, Pat Churchland's book, Conscience, uh, a number mm-hmm. of books that I think really, you know, sort of start to expound that point of view. But I, I don't think a lot of that has been heard in our community, in, mm-hmm. in the kind of uh, AI or ML communities. So you're proposing this idea that intelligence is a collaborative uh, idea. How does that manifest itself? Or what are some of the, the kind of next layer points that you're sure. making in the talk? Sure. Well, uh, so one of them is that when you expand, when you kind of zoom out to think about not just the intelligence of an individual, but the intelligence of a group or uh, of, a, of a society, mm-hmm. which you know most of our achievements are, of course. Right. Um, then you are in a multi-agent kind of universe, if you want to think about it in, in kind of our terms. And um, in a multi-agent universe, even if every individual agent is doing optimization, uh, in other words, has a clear loss function or objective and is doing, I don't know, gradient descent to optimize it, when you zoom back and look at, at the whole, that is no longer the case. Uh, and you can see that even in a, in a really simple example, like you know, the, the most minimal ecology you can make is an ecology of two things. And GANs are an example of an ecology of two things, mm-hmm. right? You have an art, an actor, and a, or an artist and a critic, and their goals are different, and they're kind of misaligned, right? The artist is trying to fool the critic; the, the critic is trying to winkle out, you know, mm-hmm. to suss out the, the artist. And when you look at what at what happens in the interaction between those two, they pursue each other, and there's a spiral, you know. So it's a, this is a dynamical system, and dynamical systems have chaos, you know, they have vorticity, they have limit right. cycles. And that does not look like, like gradient descent anymore. Like if you look at the dynamics of gradient descent, it looks like a curl-free field. And curl-free? Yes, meaning that, meaning that there's no uh, twist in, okay. in trajectories. Everything goes downhill, right. so trajectories have, no, have no, no curve in them. Whereas these GANs, you know, that, that's why they're so quote-unquote hard to train, uh, you know, because they, they have predator-prey kinds of dynamics essentially. So what happens is a lot more complicated. Right, uh, right. You know, it so happens that GANs were invented to have a fixed point that coincides with the, the optimum of a function that can be written down, which reproduces a distribution P of X. Mm-hmm. But that's just, you know, that's just an artifact of how we, how we cooked that particular one up. And in fact, it's, it's not as if GANs, when they converge, are, are, are in general necessarily at such a global optimum hmm. either. You know, so, so that's like the minimal ecology. And when you, and, and when you consider that we're made out of cells. You know, neurons are cells that each have their own objectives and, and so on. It's not just ecologies when you look at, say, multiple people that have that property, but a single brain or a single thing is in turn composed of sub-things that have their own goals and agendas. Right. Uh, so it's, it's, you know, it turtles all the way down and all the way up. And right. when, when you start looking at it that way, then I, I guess I'm, I'm not saying that optimization is, is, is dumb or is a bad way to look at things, but it's more mm-hmm. like that's just a local force. And when you look at, it, at the system, the, um, the behavior of that system cannot be determined by just looking at those local forces. You have to look at the entire picture. I mean, it's, it's especially fascinating when you think of it in the context of research like, uh, you know, how much of our behavior is controlled by our microbiome that's or... Right. I was just watching some TV show, maybe it was like an Earth type of show that showed, you know, how some parasite would infect these ants and cause them to do the like these zombie-like behaviors, mind control. Yeah, that's right. um, Which I think underscores your point that you know so much of well behavior and you know manifest behavior that we see is controlled by kind of the interactions of things as opposed to you know some optimization function. Exactly, and and the boundary between parasitism 
or um, predation or exploitation and symbiosis is not only is it a fine line, I'm not even sure the line exists. Well, certainly not <laughs> if you step back and look at a system. Right. 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 What but, is the, um, the, the system's optimization function may be very different from that of the ant. That's right. But even if you look at things, that, you know, even if you try to make firm boundaries around, say, an individual person, I mean, like there was a, there was a, a, a recent discovery that I thought was really cool about um, the ARC virus. So uh, there, there are a lot of retroviruses that have been incorporated into our gene, into our germline, into our genome, okay. and that are passed on. Uh, some of them for for many, many uh, hundreds of millions of years, and uh, the ARC virus is one of those. Um, so uh, you know, we've known that it's there for a long time, but. Nobody, nobody knew what it was doing. It was finally caught. Just so I understand this, mm -hmm. you say passed along or kind of incorporated into our gene pool, meaning the body fundamentally creates this virus as yes. part of existing. That's exactly right. Like the virus is no longer distinct from your from your genetics. It's not. Okay. It's not that it's you know endemic in a population and gets right. passed on. It's literally part of your DNA. Okay. So these are retroviruses that inject themselves into the DNA and into the germline and, and propagate along with you, mm. just like mitochondria. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, those are bacteria, of course, right? But we're we're full of symbi of these kind of symbiotic things. And and arc, uh, it turns out, you know, it was caught in this electron microscope actually forming its its viral coat and you know forming its capsid. Okay. And if you knock it out in mice, they can't remember anything longer than twenty four hours. Wow. So like they're involved for in, in some way that we don't fully understand in in memory formation. Huh. Um, you know. Wow. <laughs> there, uh, some people think that AIDS, uh, you know, it was kind of on the way. I mean, hopefully we've now, you know, we've now um, sort of controlled it. But um, we might have essentially been witnessing a kind of event that has happened many, many times in, in human history, wherein, you know, a virus begins uh, very virulent and, 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 and devastating, but eventually um, uh, kind of goes global, as it were, and, and becomes incorporated into our genes for good. And so to make this more concrete, yes. perhaps. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it maybe before, you know, a, a pit stop before we go into more concrete and sure. technical, you know, it, it calls to mind, obviously, I guess, kind of a lot of the research in, I think, maybe the 80s or 70s, like swarming behaviors yeah. and things like that. Yeah, that's right. Um, which I'm imagining are very simplistic models relative to the things that you're thinking about. Um, well, yes, yes and no. Also tractable. Yeah, that's right. So that's, uh, I, I was, um, if I have time tomorrow, I'm going to show two things, two sort of technical things. One of which is very simple and is very much along those kind of 80s swarming sorts of lines. It's a simulation of bacteria. Um, so trivial system, the learning is very, very simple. And so you can characterize it you know, completely. Um, and the other one is is about neural nets and update rules for uh, for cells and synapses. So okay. that one applies to you know to the kind of systems that we we build. Okay. So the bacteria one, um, yeah, it's very much inspired by that kind of Santa Fe Institute, you know, yeah. <laughs> sort of work from the from the eighties nineties. And um, the idea there is, you know, bacteria have have um, E. coli in particular can either run or tumble. So when they run, mm -hmm. they're going in a straight line, and when they tumble, they randomize their direction. It's it has to do with the direction the flagella are, are rotating. Mm -hmm. And um, you know they're too small to have a sense of like the global environment. Um, you know they can just go straight or 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 kind of reverse, kind of like those RC cars that have a like go straight yeah. or you know reverse and turn <laughs> kind of mode. And so it's a one bit output. And so I I, I did a little simulation of them, and um, they uh, they have a food source that moves around, and if they don't get enough food, they die, and uh, and if they if their food gets if their energy level gets high enough, they reproduce. Uh, they can also conjugate when they touch. They can swap a little bit of DNA. 
and um, and the and the, the androgosa mutation. So, so it's artificial evolution. The first experiment involves um, thinking about the genome as just being the Q table. In other words, you know, in, in RL language, right, just the, the table of you know stimuli to behavior. And you can see how you know with this kind of evolutionary pressure, they evolve to follow the food. There's a kind of you know, there are algorithms that, that let you do that. Essentially, they involve tumbling more when you're in the food and running more when you're far away from the food. Okay. And statistically, that will, that will make the colony of bacteria follow the food around. I'm um, imagining uh, the picture that comes to mind for me is the uh, kind of the classic picture of uh, an RL agent. I forget the game, but it's like a boat game where the RL agent kind of learns that it can rack up points by just spinning around in this particular <laughs> place. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, well, I mean, the, the, I mean, one of the fun things, of course, about RL is that, and any kind of machine learning really is that you know it, it can it, it'll if there's a way to cheat, it'll figure it out. Right, right. <laughs> like life. Right. Um, that's right. So, um, so yeah, it figures out how to follow the food around this way. Um, things get a little more interesting if you add an additional output and you let them emit an extra chemical that they can also sense. Okay. So um, that and that's done by bacteria. They have chemo, chemo signaling. So. You know, the, in the rules of the game that I set up, if they're signaling, they're losing health faster. So it's costly. It's costly to signal. So the, you would, you would you'd first think that, well, the first thing they'll learn is to not signal because, you know, it's, it, it has no advantage for them, uh, basically, and it, and it burns energy faster. Mm-hmm. But they don't. They keep signaling. Uh, so in, in, you know, generation after generation, you know, restart after restart, they, you know, almost all of them retain the signaling capability. And what you realize, of course, is that they become a superorganism when they when they start to share genes, and you know. So thinking about them as individuals or as a or as a single as as a single organism as a tissue, you know, it's kind of like in the eye of the beholder. There's no mm-hmm. right. It's it's that's not determined by the rules of the game. And so, are we talking about the observed behavior in the game in the or in the and in thing that life. you model? <laughs> right. Okay. Yes and yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes and yes. Um, I mean, it, in the model, you can reduce everything to very that's a very very simple right. uh, principles and and see all of those behaviors emerge, which is which is fun because then you you know then it becomes clear that we're understanding something. So yeah, they signal to each other. They obviously are behaving like a superorganism. You can't say what is you know what is the agent. You know, is it one? Is it many? And it's also kind of hard to say what they're optimizing. You know, like. Um, if you take a very Darwinian red of tooth and claw kind of perspective, they're like, well, they're they're trying to they're maximizing their energy intake. Well, right. but who is maximizing their energy intake? Is it an individual bacterium? Is it the whole colony? How do you think about you know the population or the size relative to what is being taken in? What does optimization actually look like? Because um, in simulation, you observe behaviors that are suboptimal. Either individually or globally, but optimal otherwise, or well, even talking about optimal is hard. So I, you know, you just I mean, uh, you according just, uh, to the optimization that you propose, that it's all about energy in- intake and and thus kind of speed of reproduction. Well, all, all I said was that they die if they go to zero, and they reproduce if they get to one. I didn't say what was being optimized. Okay. So you know, I mean, the, the thing with evolution is that like what you see is what makes it. You know, what mm-hmm. persists exists. You know, we're not actually writing down a loss function. <laughs> so you can ask what is optimized, and that's actually mm-hmm. an inverse reinforcement learning problem. Mm-hmm. In other words, you have a Q table, now you back what's out. The policy? What's the right? What's the, right. What's the reward? And um, I kind of cheated in order to get so IRL inverse reinforcement learning is actually a hard problem in general. But I cheated by switching things up so that rather than the genome being the Q table, now the genome is the reward map. So they essentially evolve a reward system or an emotional system, if you want to think about it that way. And we see like. Well, what's the reward system that actually result, results in you know in in survival? 
And um, what comes out is kind of what you would expect, which is that in general, you know, you look at this many, many times. Um, death is bad. Signaling is bad because that's you know that that hurts. You know, it, you 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 lose you health. Lose energy. Right. right. Uh, mating is good. Survival is good. Food is good. You know, those are positive. These are negative. So it's, you know, it's kind of what you'd expect. But the surprise is the error bars. So when you look at specific winning solutions, that is solutions that you know converge and that and that persist. Um, they're all over the map. So those are averages that I just gave you, but the variance mm-hmm. is huge. They're all these different reward maps that all work. You know, they, some of them result in... Meaning dying off is a lot harder than continuing, in a sense? Well, the, the set of... If you can define rewards, harder. Um, I mean, the set of, of, of emotional systems or rewards that, that work is small relative to the total imaginable space of reward maps. Mm. But it's also very varied. Right. And there's not just one. There's not just one. Right. Okay. But there, like, there are many. And uh, some of them involve lots of exploration. Uh, and therefore, death is not bad for those. They're not afraid of death in some sense. Mm-hmm. Some of them are very conservative and therefore have smaller populations. They hate death. They don't signal very much. They follow the food around really closely. And all of those are viable. Mm-hmm. So, you know, even so the question, this is kind of one data point, just so yeah, we yeah. don't get stuck in time on this thing. Because yes. I could ask you a bunch of questions about this <laughs> yeah, particular course. thing. This is one data point that informs... A lot of larger perspective. What's yeah. the other? You mentioned a second example. Yes. So um, yeah, all of this is really just a kind of extended example of you know of some of the problems that arise when you try and look at a a real evolutionary system in terms of optimization and try and ask basic questions like what is it optimizing? Mm-hmm. Um, so I then take that to the home, I guess, to the thing that that concerns all of us at this conference, which is all right. So how do you how do you train a model? There's been a bunch of work in um, in recent years on meta learning, uh, which mm-hmm. uh, which involves you know, learning to learn. Uh, so learning maybe what the update rule is at a synapse, or learning how you know not not assuming that the that the learning algorithm is fixed. Mm-hmm. I really like that approach because you know our genome basically has in it the learning rule for our neurons and synapses, and that evolved. So I began playing around with systems that evolve. Uh, use evolution to determine the rules for um, neuron state and synapse state over time, and therefore that have to learn to learn. They learn to learn on an evolutionary time scale, and they learn on a behavioral time scale, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. So the learning to learn includes instinct and imprinting and other kinds of things. Um, and the learning to learn, you know, establishes the ability to to uh, to go from stimuli to to generalization. And if you do that, um, you, you basically have a little kind of LSTM at every neuron and every synapse that has local state and uh, and has its own timescales and so on that it, that it learns evolutionarily. Then you can get very very fast learning of um, of standard kind of machine learning models. I, I give you know some MNIST type examples. Mm-hmm. So learning from very very few examples, and that's interesting if you just think about it in terms of. Optimization, you know, and this is in the spirit of some other work that has been done. Uh, uh, Ravi and La Rochelle wrote a really nice paper in, in 2016 or 2017 that that did something similar. Uh, my version of this is a little more general in that it's not it's not designed necessarily to optimize. It's kind of broader. It's just like any old, you know, it's it's a it's a very general kind of synapse rule and a very general cellular evolution rule. And I don't so just say, so I understand this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you've got the picture that's forming in my head is kind of multiple agents or entities that have some kind of embedded, you know, memory sequence LSTM based mm-hmm. thing and in their interactions they can essentially learn and solve MNIST type problems. 
Well, I, I do show an example like that, but an even but simpler... not at all what you're saying. <laughs> an, an, well, the simpler, the simpler version is as follows. Okay. Uh, imagine that you just have, you know, in one neural net, a single kind of LSTM, single, okay. a single set of weights for an LSTM that live at every cell and every synapse. It's like your genome, mm-hmm. right? So that determines how the, how the cell responds to inputs mm-hmm. and how the weights change. So, so it's kind of a dynamic weight model based on the parameters of this LST, the LSTMs at each of the neurons, essentially. That's right. That's okay. Right. And it's a common LSTM. So, you know, it's a small, it's, it's, it's like the difference between the genome and the connectome. The genome is very small, connectome mm-hmm. is very large. Mm-hmm. The LSTM parameters are, you know, are the same everywhere, like a convolutional net kind of. Okay. And so they, they comprise the genome of the neural net. And whatever weights it learns over time are the connectome. The same everywhere in structure, not in value. That's right. That's mm-hmm. right. So different state at every neuron and synapse, but but the same um, weights. Right. Right on on, on the LSTM. Right. Um, which in turn determine the rule for updating the the, the, the weights in the neural net. Mm-hmm. A little confusing, I know, but um, yeah, it's hard to do without the whiteboard. It's a little hard without the whiteboard. We run into that a lot. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> Um, so, so yeah. How do you train? How do you how do you determine the genome? Mm-hmm. Well, now you do have to have a population. So you have a population of neural nets that, in the beginning, have random genomes, and they attempt to learn. Meaning, you feed them MNIST digits, you feed them an error signal, and the ones that do a better job survive and reproduce. Meaning, they share their LSTM weights and, and yield a new generation. And the ones that that do poorly die off. Mm-hmm. So um, you can use evolution strategies to do this. Uh, I, I use CMAES, or you can use more classical kinds of evolution. What's CMAES. Uh, CMAES is a um, so the ES is evolution strategies. Okay. And CMA is a particular variant of this that that assumes that the the, the set of parameters is a Gaussian blob, okay. and uh, and essentially estimates the gradient of the fitness along that Gaussian and uses that to kind of make a new Gaussian in the next generation. Okay. So it's a, it's a toy model of evolution. And it's a very robust optimizer for, uh, for moderate dimensionality. Mm-hmm. Um, so you do that with the genes, and you end up evolving a, a, you know, a kind of net that learns really fast, if that's what you, what you make your fitness function. Like learn mm-hmm. from the minimum number of examples, learn as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. So like in a normal you know, MNIST kind of setup, you, know, you'll, you measure how much training data in terms of how many passes over you know, all 50,000 Training right. examples or something. This one, you know, you measure its performance in terms of how many digits you show it. Mm-hmm. So, like after you've shown it ten or twenty digits, it's already doing pretty well. So it's you know really 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 small end. You know, and after. are you able to introspect into it and understand what the what hell it's, it's doing. learning? <laughs> what the hell? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, um, I, I haven't done enough of that yet. But I'm envisioning um, like the texture and feature maps of a, right. a neural network. That's right. Well, I, I don't think that what it's what it's learn what the what the network is learning that the the, the weights are. Um, yeah, weights is an, is an ambiguous term here. I don't think that that what the synapses get set to is particularly different from a, a normal neural net. Okay. What's different is the update rules. Yeah. So the, and the update rules are are governed by a little LSTM. So figuring out what that is doing is you know is kind of like a biology problem. Mm-hmm. You know, it's actually not that it's not that trivial. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But you can do things like um, you know normally when we do backprop, um, we assume symmetric weights, meaning you know that that the you use the same weights when you're backpropagating as when mm-hmm. you forward propagate. You have to, otherwise you can't take the derivative. Mm-hmm. But um, we know that in real brains that's not how it works. Like. Um, you know, signals don't propagate back through synapses in order right, to update right, neurons. Right. Um, and so usually we think of MNIST as this toy problem, but yeah. for someone that works on OCR, <laughs> particularly relevant, like, are these things that 
you oh. can you you have a path to actually using putting oh, yeah. it in production yeah, and yeah. for what? Well, um, I mean, in in this case, the goals are to be able to learn from small data, uh, which I care about from the point of view of privacy, uh, and I care about because you know I think one of the Achilles' heels of of deep learning as we do it today is its reliance on massive amounts of data, and the reason we have that that reliance is because because we don't have very sophisticated learning rules and they don't embed any priors that have been learned over you know, evolutionary time the way ours have about the world. Right? It's all of those priors and all of that intelligence that lives in our genome that lets us learn so fast. So you know, this is an attempt to say like, well, can we reproduce what evolution did in order to learn statistical priors and learning rules that, uh, that radically outperform the feature engineered rules that we have today, you know, Adam and Adagrad and right. SGD and right. all that. So that's interesting, just from a, from the point I of view of doing normal. I get want it. <laughs> My question is, is there a catch, right? You know, do we just throw LSTMs and everything, and you know, now everything converges way quick, you know, way more quickly? Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it's it's much more computationally expensive to do that, mm -hmm. of course. But um, but on the other hand, if you can learn from many many fewer examples, then you know. It's still a good thing, right. uh, even computationally, and, mm -hmm. and, and certainly from the point of view of data. Is there a trade-off? Yeah, absolutely. The trade-off is that you know, when you're learning from very few examples, that means that, there are, that you're bringing much heavier weight and sometimes rather opaque priors to bear mm -hmm. on the problem. Mm -hmm. So you know, you're subject to more cognitive fallacies and all kinds of you know, all the things that humans are subject to. Mm -hmm. So all the issues that uh, we talk about as bias that's being introduced in you know our data distributions are potentially magnified many fold because we're training on much less data. Possibly, although um, I, I guess I would say a couple of things. I mean, one is that when you have very small, when you can learn from very small amounts of data, then um, you can perhaps be a bit more careful about how you curate that. But uh, and, and also, of course, the fact that the genome is very small means that you maybe have a little bit more hope of understanding how, you know, what those biases and, and meta priors are. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's still positive from the point of view of problems like ML fairness and so on. Mm -hmm. but, but that's definitely something that we, you know, one has to look at very, very closely. Because, mm -hmm. um, yeah, you know, newborn babies uh, you know, will, will, will react with fear to snake-like objects. So like, even at a mm -hmm. very high-level object recognition kind of level, you know, there's something in the genome that, you know, that makes snake-like things scary. And so you can imagine the problems that can arise from you know from having uh, you know priors like that, hidden priors like that, you know, in in the in the genome for learning nets. So yes, that's that's definitely an issue. But um, but at a, at a more at a more meta level, also to connect this to the bacteria stuff, you know, what you what you can imagine is that this rule it's not just a learning rule; it's actually a rule for how brains or how behavior works. And in that sense, it's like an emotional system. What what has been learned by evolution is what is good or bad as well, locally. In that sense, I think that this is a route toward, um, uh, toward real AI in ways that I don't think we can do with, um, I don't think we can get to that um, by, by handwriting either uh, update rules or um, fitness functions or loss functions. And so in the, the model we were just talking about, mm -hmm. the individual agents, actors, whatever you want to call organisms are these LSTMs. Right, is so that's that, kind of looking at a, looking at a, at a neural net as a society of neurons. Right, if you right, want to think about it that right, way, right. you can also then take these brains and put them together, right, and have them teach each other you know, the kind of things that you were pointing out, right? Have them mm -hmm. interact socially, and, and that's also super interesting. And I think that that's how you actually get emotional systems that 
you know, that, that work. So, uh, so yeah, I, I, I have come to the belief that our route to, I mean, I don't know what to call AGI, you know, AGI, I guess, right? But, right. but our route to like real brains has to go through this, uh, like social stop, intelligence. Yeah. It has to go through the social route and stopping, um, hand defining the loss functions and the update rules. Mm. Interesting, interesting. One of the things that is common between the swarm intelligence approach we were referring to earlier and what you just described uh, is kind of a, you know, everything's the same. Like you're building these systems out of components that are the same and groups of components that are the same. Whereas, um, you know, maybe the counter example that we've talked about is GANs, where you've got these two distinct things with different goals. Yes. Uh, Do you, have you started looking at uh, more heterogeneous, heterogeneous systems. Yeah, I have. So um, even within a single neural net, I've often played with having different genes for every layer, for example, uh, or having different brain areas that have different um, that have different genes in them that are interacting. Uh, you know, with um, you know that are, that are sort of feeding to, feeding into each other with asymmetric weights um, that are you know whose interactions are learned, uh, or having multiple species together. That have entirely different kinds of inputs and outputs, and that, and that you know, so this is a, it gets into a very a life, a very artificial life kind of uh, of paradigm. Uh, so yeah, I think those are all really interesting roots. I mean, the challenge with a lot of this is, of course, that you know we've really relied on the fact that these things look like scores or games for a long time in order to talk about like what is state of the art, what is better or worse. You know, it's research groups com- you know competing or collaborating with each other, right, um, with a well defined metric, and it's really hard to take these more social and organic kind of approaches and come up with the same sort of clear metrics, you know, for what constitutes progress. So that's, I, that's one of the big challenges that I want to kind of leave the audience with, you know, how do, how do we, how do we keep that sense of clarity of progress about, you know, how, uh, how we're advancing in our understanding and our ability to solve these problems when we, you know, I, I believe inherently need to start looking at things that don't have such well-defined scores. And is that because the things that we should care about are internal metrics of these social entities? Or if we want to get kind of near-term-ish value out of them, we're applying them to problems that have some type of score associated with them. Yeah. Like, you know, the things that we've been doing, like translation and OCR and, you know, playing games and things like that. Uh, why aren't those metrics sufficient for these types of systems. Yeah, yeah. So it's both of the things you just said uh, are correct. I mean, I, I'm not saying that that metrics are a bad thing for OCR, um, you know, or for face recognition, where like you know it's very clear what is good or bad, you know. Mm-hmm. So so the problem of ML fairness for face recognition, for example, is a very is now much discussed, and it's actually really well posed. Mm-hmm. Like if it doesn't work as well at distinguishing faces for some uh, for some group of people um, that we define socially, then that's a problem. And the the answer is clear, you know, mm-hmm. like sample better in that in that space, you know, measure better in that space, and you know, and 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 set a higher a higher bar for, you know, for everything to perform equally well. Mm-hmm. The problem is that most most real stuff doesn't actually fit into that uh, into that paradigm. You know, what is the loss function for um, uh, you know for a credit score for for the correct assignment of a credit score, or for couples counseling, you know, or for good or bad art, uh, or for you know how to rank notifications mm-hmm. on Android, for that matter. 
You know, it's so like really bread and butter <laughs> stuff. You know what I'm saying? Like if you just optimize for engagement. I can tell you a thing or two about the loss function for ranking notifications on Android. <laughs> well, you know. And actually they're rules. <laughs> yeah. So at the moment, at the moment, it's unfortunately a lot of, a lot of hard rules that, yeah. that themselves, I mean, that's, we're back to Q tables again. Like if you try and back, back out using enforced reinforcement learning, right. like, okay, those rules are all, you know, kind of carefully considered. Like what are they optimizing? You cannot write down what they're optimizing for, mm. right? right? They're coming from from a whole bunch of different socially constructed right. Right. intuitions. So, so kind of your point is, you're proposing this uh, potentially much more powerful paradigm, and with this much more power, powerful paradigm, we should be able to push into areas that we can't apply. You know, right. I always falter saying traditional machine learning since we're <laughs> right. changing. But machine learning so as we know it today. Machine learning as yeah. we know it today, That's right. um, which is very much based on kind of being able to write down these loss functions. That's right. But, you know, we're kind of in a, it's a little bit of a chicken and an egg. Like we can't write That's down right. the loss functions, so we don't know how to apply these new things or yeah. even how to measure That's right. success with these new things. Well, and what I would argue is that, you know, it, again, it's social, right? So the point of ranking, I mean, if you were doing the ranking, and you know you were like a little person living in in somebody's phone doing the ranking for them, and you were able to consult also with the other rankers, you know, and everybody else's phone using federated learning or something like that. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, the fun the the fundamental tool that you'd want to be able to do that effectively is empathy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not it's not like maximize engagement, you know, or some kind of stupid you know quantitative measure like that. Right. It's more like you know be good for the humans. Right. <laughs> right. Right. So that requires empathy, and and that requires modeling the other. And using that as a guide uh, for how to behave collectively and individually, and, and there and there may be conflicts in that, like you know whether you model them, in, uh, you know, at the individual level or the collective level, you know, just like in medical ethics, you have conflicts about, say, you know, um, I don't know, giving people antibiotics, right? As right in the, in the aggregate, it's not not necessarily a good thing. At the indivi- if you're only optimizing for the individual, you'll do it more, and so on. The same issues come up here. So you know, you've got to kind of create an entity that has clear allegiances and clear kind of, uh, you know, empathic goals uh, that don't quite look like loss functions, but look more like being able to relate socially to the relevant kinds of entities. And you're coming at this from a biological perspective. I imagine that there are connections to many other, you know, economics and sociology and other things if you were to really get into the social aspect of this. That's right. And dynamical systems theory and and, and various other fields. Mm -hmm. Right. So a lot of of other fields come into it. Yeah. Exactly. Awesome, awesome. Well, Blaise, thanks so much for taking the time to uh, you know share what you're doing and give us a preview of what you're speaking about uh, tomorrow. Of course, folks that are listening to this can actually go and check out the recording of your talk. Absolutely, my um, pleasure. If they've listened to all of this, they've gotten a longer version than the talk tomorrow morning. So thank you for asking such great questions. Nice. Thank you so much. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.